On September 19, 1961, Betty and Barney Hill were driving in a rural portion of New Hampshire. It was about 10.30 at night, and the two were heading home from an impromptu honeymoon. The couple were married some 16 months earlier, but were unable to secure any time off of work with Barney's job at a post office and Betty's job as a state social worker. When they were finally able to take some time off together, they decided to drive to Montreal and then back through Niagara Falls. The trip was a quick one, and the two had to hurry back to take care of their commitments. On the way back, Barney Hill had figured that at the rate they were driving, that they would be able to reach their home in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, between 2 and 3 in the morning. This would allow them to beat the arrival of an approaching hurricane. The two stopped to have coffee at a roadside diner in Vermont, only to get back on the road at about 10 p.m. As they drove into the night, the couple noticed something odd in the sky. Barney and Betty noticed a bright light that appeared to be a shooting star at first, but grew brighter as the couple drove on. Barney, an amateur plane enthusiast and World War II vet, assured Betty that they had nothing to worry about. Oddly, however, the light seemed to move with the car as the couple continued to drive. As Barney maneuvered the car down the curving mountainside, the light seemed to shadow them, dipping behind trees and ridges only to appear again on the horizon a few moments later. The Hills reasoned that the headlights and the movement from the car must have been creating some kind of optical illusion. After some time watching the aerial phenomena, the Hills decided to use a roadside turnout to get a better look at the object. Betty used a pair of binoculars they had with them and, after gazing at the object for a few minutes, told her husband that this was no airplane or star. She told her husband that the object was hovering above the tree line and seemed to be spinning. Barney reasoned that this was too quiet to be a helicopter and that no other military aircraft at the time, regardless of how good the pilot was, could fly in such a manner. Back on the road and growing more concerned as the object continued to follow them, Barney finally stopped the car roughly 70 miles from their last stop at the diner, grabbed a small handgun he had with him and the binoculars, then exited the car, leaving Betty behind with the engine running. He darted into a nearby field where he crouched in the weeds to get a better look at the object. Later, Barney would describe what he saw as, as big as a jet, but as flat as a pancake. He remembered thinking that what he was seeing couldn't be real. Through his binoculars, Barney saw what looked like humanoid figures standing behind large windows on the craft. The terrifying thought of them being captured crossed Barney's mind and he ran back to the car. The two took off down the road again, with Barney driving at a high speed while Betty continued to watch the mysterious lights follow them. The Hills described hearing a few loud beeps that seemed to emanate from the trunk of the car before feeling incredibly drowsy and losing consciousness. The couple awoke two hours later, 35 miles from where they had stopped. The Hills arrived home in Portsmouth at around dawn. They noted some strange things the next day as they tried to make sense of the night before. Betty insisted that they place their luggage near the back door of the house, but could not explain why she felt the need to do so. Both Barney and Betty's watches had stopped running. The leather strap to their binoculars was torn, but neither could remember how this happened. Barney's dress shoes were scuffed. Betty's dress was torn and seemed to be covered in some kind of pink chemical dust. The trunk of the car also had shiny, circular markings on it that seemed to interfere with the directional sense of compasses, making the needle spin rapidly when they were placed next to it. Both Barney and Betty drew pictures of what they had seen and wrote down what they could remember of the previous night. On September 21st, Betty Hill contacted Pease Air Force Base to report what they had seen, but withheld some of the details for fear of being ridiculed. They were interviewed by one Major Paul Henderson, but their story was quickly dismissed. 
the Hills were told they simply misidentified the planet Jupiter. Later, after doing some research at a local library, Betty contacted retired Major Donald Kehoe, who was the director of NICAP, or the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, a civilian UFO research organization. In her letter, Betty described the experience to include the human-like figures Barney witnessed staring at them through a window along the side of the craft. Their story was passed along to Walter Webb, a NICAP member and astronomer. Webb met with the Hills on October 21, 1961, where they related to him all the information they could remember, although Barney admitted that he felt he had developed some sort of mental block about the experience, as if he were deliberately forgetting things about it that he did not want to remember. Over the course of the next few years, the Hills would come to piece together more of their frightening experience through some of Betty's incredibly vivid dreams, which she began to write down, and through some hypnosis sessions with a psychiatrist named Benjamin Simon. Taken together, the story of what happened after the Hills fell unconscious began to emerge. According to the story, the two continued to drive that night until being stopped by some kind of roadblock. Their car was surrounded by small men, all wearing matching blue uniforms, none standing more than five foot four, who then led them out of the car and into the forest. Betty tried to call out to her husband, who was being led directly behind her, but noted that he was walking as if in some kind of a trance. The two of them were walked aboard the metallic spacecraft by way of a large ramp. Betty described the men who abducted them as human-like, each wearing what looked like military cadet caps. They had black hair, dark eyes, prominent noses, bluish lips, and gray skin. Aboard the craft, the beings tried to separate Barney and Betty Hill, to which she remembered protesting. One of the beings, whom Betty referred to as the leader, explained to her that they had to be separated to save time during their examinations. Betty and Barney were then taken to separate rooms. Once in another room, the leader and another being she referred to as the examiner began a procedure they told her would allow them to discern some of the differences between their species. Betty was seated on a chair and a bright light was placed on her. The beings took a lock of her hair, then examined her mouth, eyes, teeth, throat, and hands. They saved trimmings up from her fingernails, then examined her legs and feet. Betty then stated that they collected skin samples by scraping her skin with what looked like a dull knife. Lastly, Betty was subjected to a large needle being thrust into her stomach through her navel, an experience which caused her a tremendous amount of pain that was suddenly eased when the leader waved his hand in front of her face. After the examiner left the room, Betty engaged in a conversation with the leader being, including an interaction where they discussed a book that was sitting in the room that contained a number of odd symbols. At first, Betty stated that the being allowed her to take the book with her, However, upon further conversation with the other beings, recanted and took the book back. This, Betty said, caused some disagreement between them. At one point, the leader also pulled out a star map and pointed to where he and his crewmates were from in the cosmos. Before leaving, the leader being suggested that Barney and Betty wait to watch the ship fly away before continuing on their journey. According to the account of the hills, they did so before continuing on. Barney Hale's version of events from that night came to light when he agreed to be hypnotized on January 4, 1964. During the regression, Barney described tearing the strap of the binoculars when he ran back from the field to the car. He remembered leaving in the car but felt an irresistible urge to pull the car off of the road into the woods. The car stalled and the couple were suddenly surrounded by three men. Barney stated that the leader told him not to be afraid and suggested that he close his eyes for the experience, which Barney did. 
Under hypnosis, Barney recounted being hypnotized by the eyes of the aliens. He made several references to how their eyes looked and how they were so big he felt that they could have been disconnected from a body. Barney was also able to describe a procedure whereby sperm was extracted from his body, skin was scraped off, and his ears and nose were examined. In the end, both Betty and Barney Hill's stories matched when they were each placed under hypnosis. Both also complained about lost time when they noticed that a drive that should have taken roughly four hours actually took more than seven. Neither could remember any of a 35-mile stretch of road that they had supposedly driven after the abduction. Later, Betty Hill was also able to reconstruct the star map that she stated she had been shown by the leader. While controversial, the map drawn by Betty Hill was analyzed by an amateur astronomer and schoolteacher named Marjorie Fish. The map, she argued, located the beings from the double star system of Zeta Reticuli. This episode is about alien abduction. Welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono and Dr. David Morelos. So, David, I think this episode is really going to highlight our Mulder and Scully-like differences. Sure. This is one of those areas where we have very different beliefs, and it's kind of interesting because I'm from New Mexico, born and raised, and that, of course, is where the famous Roswell UFO crash supposedly occurred. But even despite all of that, I'm still probably one of the biggest skeptics when it comes to this topic. So I wanted to start off by saying that while it's possible that someone with a mental illness might have a delusional belief that he or she was abducted by aliens, it's actually believed that the vast majority of people who believe they've been abducted do not have a mental illness. Okay, that's worth noting, I think. Yeah. So a few different surveys have looked at this, and it appears that nearly half of all Americans believe that there is life on other planets. And many of these people believe that there is intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. And many of those people believe aliens have already visited Earth. So a survey completed by 20th Century Fox in 2017 found that about 18% of Americans believe in alien abduction, and slightly less than that, about 17% said they had seen a UFO. So I thought that was kind of interesting that more people reported believing in alien abduction than people reporting that they had seen a UFO. Okay. And what was also interesting, I don't remember the exact percentage. I think it was around 20%. So 17%, a little less than 17% said that they had seen a UFO but a higher percentage of Americans said that they knew somebody who had seen a UFO. Mm-hmm. So that like makes me think of urban legends where 
It's like, well, I haven't actually ever seen the man with the hook for a hand, but I know, you know, Bobby's brother's cousin was out on the lane and saw it. Right. So that that's kind of, I just, something kind of a funny thought that I had. Okay. So it's hard to know the number of people who believe that they've actually been abducted by aliens, but it's believed that it's a much smaller proportion of the population. Um, but it's not unheard of, and as I said, this belief is not generally associated with any sort of mental illness. So there are a couple of mainstream psychological explanations that I want to discuss that can potentially explain these experiences. Okay. So the first is that some people just make up these claims for publicity or to trick others or to try to present themselves as being unique to other people. All right. So in these cases, I would say that the individuals are purposefully being deceptive. And although I think this explains some cases, I don't think that this is what was occurring with the majority of people who report being abducted. And I don't believe that this was what was going on in the case of the Hills. Okay. That's important to note because the Hills notably did not pursue any kind of publicity, publicity or, like or compensation notoriety or, for this right. experience. Although there was a book written about it. But did they, I wonder if they benefited like that, know, that's a good that. question then I, I could I don't know. Anyway, I don't I don't actually think that that is what was going on in this case. So my thoughts about this case in particular are that the Hills memories were false. So that they were never abducted but that they truly believed that they had been. Okay. So as you mentioned, they sought the help of that psychiatrist to address some of the difficulties that they were experiencing. So I believe that you said Betty was having very vivid nightmares. And um, I don't know if you said it or if I read it elsewhere, but Barney was experiencing severe anxiety and had actually developed an ulcer. Right. I did read that. Yeah. And so the, they had gone to Dr. Benjamin Simon, a psychiatrist, and he used hypnotic regression with them. And you know, this isn't something that we hear about very often as far as psychologists or psychiatrists using hypnosis um, in current times. But at the time that they went, it was actually fairly a fairly mainstream practice. And the thought was that it would attempt to uncover what was leading to whatever difficulties people were experiencing. It was thought to kind of tap into a person's subconscious or to unlock memories that maybe they had forgotten i think that's the mainstream belief or that's the mainstream understanding of what hypnosis does right sort of so i'm going to talk about in a moment um, some of the more recent research with regard to hypnosis so during the course of the hypnosis with dr simon was when they started you know kind of remembering being abducted and having these medical experiments performed on them and it's important to point out that all of the things that I read suggested that Dr. Simon said that he never actually believed that the Hills were abducted, but he believed that they sincerely believed it. And so, you know, he didn't really buck it, but he didn't, when they said, well, do you believe that they were abducted by aliens? He was like, well, probably not. That's really interesting. So you and I must have looked at different things when we were researching this. Why? Did you find something that said that he really believed they were abducted? No, it didn't make any mention of his own personal belief as to what happened. It was just the mention of this is what Dr. Simon used you know, in order to extract this information. But it was never really, I didn't really read an opinion from him as to what he thought. Well, and to be fair, I was researching kind of the more mainstream psychological theories about this case 
And so, of course, I think that they would want to highlight the fact that the psychiatrist didn't actually believe that they were abducted. Oh, that's worth noting. Yeah, maybe. For sure. So, Dr. Simon, like I said, he didn't think that they were purposefully making this up. And from what I've read about the case, like I said, I don't think that they were making it up either. So since that time, there's been a lot of research into hypnosis, and what has been found time and time again is that many people are more prone to developing false memories during this process. So we tend to think that our minds are kind of like recording devices. So something happens, and then it just gets encoded in our brains exactly the way that it occurred. And what we know about memory is that that's not how it works. There are a lot of different factors that influence our memories. And our memories can actually change over time. And sometimes we forget things that we once recalled. And sometimes we misremember things or remember things that never actually happened. So during hypnosis, like as I said, people are more likely to develop or remember these false memories. And this is especially the case if the therapist makes any sort of suggestive statements And it especially occurs with individuals who are already highly suggestible and highly imaginative. Generally, the current thought is that we need to be wary of any memories that are recovered during hypnosis. In fact, in several courts in the United States, they have what is called the per se exclusionary rule, which states that hypnotically refreshed memories cannot be admitted into evidence because of the unreliability of these memories. So while at one point we thought, oh, this is a great way to unlock these memories, we're finding that it's, it's pretty unreliable, especially if the, the psychiatrist, psychologist doesn't know what they're doing or if they use any sort of suggestive or leading statements. Okay, well, that makes sense. I think that the legal threshold for what constitutes accurate information is probably not too applicable in a case like this, but I could be wrong. Well, but if you think about it, they're saying that we can't trust those memories. They're not trustworthy enough for us to introduce them into a court of law. And I think that that's good information. And it does apply to this case that if this is where their memories about being abducted came from, Mm -hmm. was through this process of hypnosis, that there's a possibility that these were really false memories and that this did not occur. Okay, I understand the point. I just, again, I would say... I don't think that a legal threshold would would really be binding in a case like this. Well, of course, there's no <laughs> judge that is presiding over it and saying, Betty and Barney Hill, you are right. Your memories are untrue. Or right. Something. They're not trying to sue the aliens. <laughs> no. Right. No. Okay. So let me talk a little bit about some other research. So a study in 2000 conducted by Haber and Haber found that memories recalled during hypnosis were particularly malleable and vulnerable to manipulation, and that using leading or suggestive questions can greatly impact what is recalled. Additionally, individuals tend to put more faith in memories recalled under hypnosis due to that popular belief that hypnosis can unlock our memories. So what happens is that people are suggestible, their memories may get altered during hypnosis, and then when they come out of it, they're like, well, if I recalled it during hypnosis, it must be true. And so they're putting more stock in that. So there has been much research over the years that has demonstrated that memories often are not accurate and that they can be influenced by a number of factors, as I said earlier. Many people have suggested that the Hills memories were false memories developed during hypnosis. So I'm not the only one that has this theory that's actually a fairly popular theory. 
It seems that there have been several cases where people recovered their memories of abduction through hypnosis. And in my opinion, I know you don't agree with it, but I think it's pretty likely that their memories of being abducted are false. So another commonly thought explanation for alien abduction is sleep paralysis. Mm -hmm. And this is one that I just find super interesting. So sleep paralysis can occur either when a person is falling asleep or when they're waking up. So what happens is that the person is somewhere between sleep and wakefulness. So we go into different stages while we sleep. And although we can dream during any stage of sleep, the REM cycle or the rapid eye movement cycle is typically when people experience the most vivid dreams. And this cycle is the sleep cycle where our brains are actually closest to being awake. So during REM, our bodies are paralyzed and the we don't know exactly why that occurs, but the thought is that if we weren't paralyzed during REM, then we would act out our dreams. And right. That could be very dangerous. And there's actually a disorder where that happens, where people don't experience paralysis, and it, it's very dangerous. So the vast majority of us will experience that paralysis while we're dreaming during our REM cycle. So when a person experiences sleep paralysis, they continue to experience this paralysis, but they're awake. So that can be pretty frightening in and of itself, but many people will also continue to dream in this state. Mm -hmm. So in essence, they're awake and dreaming, which causes hallucinations. And the hallucinations that occur when a person is falling asleep are called hypnagogic hallucinations. Mm -hmm. And the ones that happen when people are waking up are called hypnopampic hallucinations. And I just throw those out there because I like those words. (laughs) Like that's not really something anybody would ever need to know. Cash in (laughs) on all the expensive words you can. (laughs) Right. So the most common hallucinations during these episodes tend to be of a malevolent presence. People who have such episodes often report experiencing a feeling of terror or dread, and they often have difficulty breathing and a sensation of someone pushing on their chest. The hallucinations are often described as ghosts, demons, and, you guessed it, aliens. Aliens. And this makes sense to me, as many people who report being abducted say it happens either at night when they're in bed or that they're getting abducted from their sleep. Right. And sleep paralysis is actually fairly common. So a study by Sharpless and Barber in 2011 found that approximately 7.6% of the population will experience at least one episode of sleep paralysis in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. So I've never had an episode like that. Have you ever experienced that? I have, and I'll get into it. Okay, okay. All right. Don't want to jump the gun. So I guess the question is, why do people have false memories or hallucinations of aliens versus other things? Right. Well, I think that this is is influenced by people's beliefs. So a person who has a belief that aliens abduct people might be more likely to develop a false memory consistent with this belief or to interpret their sleep paralysis and those hallucinations as being aliens and alien abduction. I would argue that a person who has a strong belief that there are ghosts, they might interpret it that way. I mean, I think it just kind of depends on what people believe, and that's going to influence how they interpret those experiences. Yeah, that makes sense. So those are my theories. That's mm. all I got on this. Okay. So I want to hear I want to hear your, your take on it. Sure. Mulder. All right. <laughs> so let's take a look at this. 
the first point I wanted to make has to do with the ubiquitous nature of alien visitors and alien abductions. The idea of interplanetary visitors from other worlds outside of our own is so ingrained in our culture as to make it uniquely American, almost like apple pie, I would, I would argue. There is no shortage of stories, some more well-known than others, of this phenomenon. Most people instantly know references to Roswell, New Mexico, like yeah. you mentioned. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. When we use the term the Greys, um, Project Blue Book, Men in Black, SETI, or the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, etc. Area 51. Area 51 right. is another one. There's, mm-hmm. there's plenty of references out there in pop culture. We are also intimately aware of some hundreds, hundreds probably, movies, books, television shows about alien visitors from other planets. For something for which there is very little actual evidence, there seems to be a great many ways we have integrated this phenomena into our culture. The idea of alien visitors from other planets has become part of our collective mythology. I would argue that aliens, especially in the most common form that we think of them, little gray space people with oval heads and extremely large dark eyes, are archetypical. That is, such an accepted part of our culture that it would be quite difficult to imagine what our science fiction stories would be like without this very simple idea. Hmm. But there are others in the universe capable of incredible feats of technology that are only in our imagination. So a quick story. I love stories. Okay, good. So my (laughs) father and I, you know, we're kind of like amateur alien hunters, I guess you would say that, (laughs) right? And so discussing alien stuff, whether it be the latest sighting or making a pilgrimage to Roswell, New Mexico, which we did probably about 10 years ago, which is, I've lived there my whole, you know, until I was 20, whatever years old, 23, 22 years old, and I've never been there. Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, I lived in Colorado for 35 years, and I finally made it down to Mesa Verde. Yeah, so I guess it's when you live there, you don't go there. Kind of the same thing, right? So we used to read a magazine called Omni, which was uh, dedicated to sort of fringe science stuff and new emerging science fiction authors. Lots of interesting stuff in this magazine. Uh, went out of publication, I think, in 97. Anyway, there was always a section, a little section in every edition of this magazine called UFO Update, where they discussed whatever the new topic was, you know, for UFOs that month, something that had come up. So this is, this and various science fiction based pop culture books and television shows made it nearly impossible to avoid the discussion about the possibility of extraterrestrials. Mm -hmm. Okay. So one of the things you brought up when you were discussing this is the idea that perhaps science fiction stories or the idea that because these images and ideas are so much a part of our culture that they somehow become implanted into our collective consciousness. Okay. So that's what suggests, based on beliefs, right? Right, yeah, yeah, that our beliefs influence how we interpret things. Right, and so if you're constantly being bombarded by this belief, maybe you start to internalize it and say, oh, it's aliens because they're all over the place, Right, 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 right? So my guess is that you would say that suggestible people would then integrate these images and ideas into some kind of an experience, hence the stories about being abducted. It's almost like the mind, when lacking any other way to make sense of an experience like night terrors or whatever, which sleep I believe paralysis. is sleep paralysis. Isn't that the same thing? Or no, are they different? Um, They can be different. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. I'm not a sleep expert, obviously. Yeah. I, I mean, that's not my area of expertise, but my understanding is that they're, they, they're not one and the same. Okay. So when you're experiencing this and you're trying to make sense of it, right, you grasp for something that you know. Mm-hmm. All right. So if you have this belief that there are aliens and they abduct people, that might be what you're grasping for. 
during this experience. Your would be something you would argue, correct? Yeah, that that's the lens. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I've heard rationales like this one for dreams as well, that dream imagery really has no meaning, but is rather the brain's attempt to process neurological impulses while we sleep. Granted, this is a possibility that we are trying to make a meaning out of an experience when there really is none. So I acknowledge that there, that is a possibility. But for me, for me, it's quite the opposite. In other words, I believe that this idea of alien abduction is so ubiquitous in our culture because there is something in our collective consciousness that knows it to be true. There simply are too many examples, too many stories, many of which are from people who are perfectly sound, you know, of perfectly sound body and mind. Um, And there's too many of them to completely doubt all their stories. Hmm. In the Jungian archetypes, there were recordings or records of children having dreams that included mushroom clouds. Well, we all know what a mushroom cloud signifies, mm-hmm, correct? Sure. Because it, like the idea of aliens, is a huge part of our collective and cultural understanding and mythology. But how would a, cl- a child who has no understanding of nuclear weapons or who has no understanding of the context of war, annihilation, etc., have this image in his or her dreams? It's something that we should ask ourselves, right? Yeah, I, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Again, I would argue that we are picking up onto something archetypal from the collective unconscious. Why? Because it exists somewhere out there and is a powerful enough force as to draw on a tremendous amount of mental energy from us, culturally speaking. Hmm. Aliens, like nuclear weapons, both fascinate and frighten us because of the implications that each could mean. Nuclear weapons mean the total destruction of us as a species and the natural world. This kind of power was basically unfathomable until the invention of atomic weapons. Aliens represent the idea that the universe, infinite as far as we know, is shared by other intelligent sentient beings. It doesn't get any more profound than that. Yeah, I would agree. Okay. So the power of our belief makes this phenomenon real for many people. It's the height of human hubris to think that we are alone to occupy such a vast amount of space. It's also arrogant, I think, to tell someone who's had an experience like being abducted that what happened to them is really something else and that someone like myself, that I really know what it was. I know you don't know what Are it was. Are you saying that I'm arrogant? <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying the idea might be a little arrogant. Okay. All right, all right. So, so let's take the night terror or the sleep paralysis theory. I've had these... So I, too, know what it feels like. Interestingly, I used to get these in college when I would fall asleep in the library or someplace that, you know, someplace I wasn't supposed to be sleeping. Uh Usually public, but wound up sleeping too long and fell beyond just that light sleep and into a more restful sort of REM stage, maybe, uh, would be my guess, or the deep sleep. I don't know which, Uh right? Because I'm not a sleep expert. But it seemed like it was more than just, you know, a casual nap. Yeah, you, you yeah. Know, you would slap. I had gone into a different stage of sleep. So something would tell me to be awake, but my body was not on board with that because I was still in the state that keeps you from acting out your dreams. Mm-hmm. I would be paralyzed. It would take some extreme effort and concentration to jolt my body awake from that state. Yes, it is unnerving and uncomfortable to feel vulnerable like that. Like someone could walk up and do whatever they wanted to you. So I have a question. So during these episodes, were your eyes open? open like were you awake or were you still like in that state where you're dreaming and you know that you're dreaming and you know you need to wake up it's really strange it's a very strange experience it's almost like you have your eyes open 
and you can see what's going on around you, but at the same time, what you're seeing is not what's actually around you. How how strange. Yeah, it's yeah. a very, it's a very yeah, strange I've never feeling. Yeah, that that experience. Yeah, and it's and it's again, it's uncomfortable and it's very unnerving yeah, when I it happens. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, so um, but that's all it's ever been for me. At no point have I ever manifested images of aliens taking me aboard a spaceship or anything like that. So in my experience, these are two very different things. I don't think anybody would confuse the two, especially if alien abductions are as people describe them, with elaborate storylines like the ones that were told by Betty and Barney Hill. But let's say, for the sake of argument, that this is something akin to sleep paralysis or night terrors. Let's say that the person's experience of alien abduction is all in his or her head. Well, that makes it sound like... Like we're again, like we're saying that they're lying or that they're making it up. No, I don't think that. I think again, you know what, you know, you reported that Doctor Simon said about the hills was. Well, I believe they believe it. In other words, it's a very diplomatic way of saying they really think they're telling the truth, but I don't necessarily. Yeah, I mean, they're telling their truth. I guess you could say it that way. In that, excellent. That you know, that's what they believe. It doesn't mean that it was the objective truth. Okay, well, let's let's dive into that concept a little bit, shall okay. we? Okay. So let's say that the person's experience of an alien abduction, an alien abduction, is their truth, right? It's in something that's in their head, and they believe it to be true, but not necessarily objectively true as we know it. In other words, what they describe as an abduction would simply look like someone sleeping if we were to sit up and watch them, right? All night. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. okay. Like a camera watching them. Yes. All right. And all this camera sees is them sleeping. Yeah. That's that's what they would see. Okay. Even if all that the person does is sleep, there is a whole internal experience that is going on that we don't have access to. Would you agree? I would agree. Okay, even if we were to hook them up to an fMRI machine or something like that, we could see different parts of the brain lining up of the, on the screen, but we would still never know a single thought or dream image, for that matter, inside their mind, right? Yeah. Okay. So, if this is the case, and aliens really have mastered, say, things like the technology needed to travel light-year distances and can talk to abductees telepathically, which is often described by people, right? Mm-hmm. They were spoken to telepathically. Why would it be such a leap to believe that aliens could abduct the most essential part of our being? That is, our consciousness, without even ever having to touch our body. So you're saying that basically it's just hijacking somebody's mind. Their consciousness. Not their brain, but I'm their inter- mind. I'm introducing the idea. Okay. The possibility. Okay. Right? Because now we're getting into the difference between what is experientially true for somebody versus what you and I might argue is objectively true. Okay. Okay? So, all right. So stay with me here. Even if someone is not being physically removed from their house or whatever, they feel as if their consciousness is being captured. Today, we still have very limited understanding of how consciousness works. So in this sense, being physically abducted is kind of irrelevant unless you subscribe to the idea that aliens only abduct us for our physical reproductive reasons, which is what you hear about, right? Yeah, a lot of people do think that or or they talk about like the implants right. being placed into them or, or things like that. Things like that, but things that have to do with the body. Yes. Right. right? Mm-hmm. So the fact remains, though, if not the body, the person's consciousness in the very least, is being taken against their will and led through an experience, which is sometimes terrifying. 
even if this experience looks from the outside like something normal, if that person's consciousness is being extracted or taken, then this is, in effect, an abduction. Hmm. Whether we think of that in the conventional sense or not. It's a very intriguing idea. Okay. I'm still feeling pretty scully on it, though. All right. I'll tell you. A little skeptical. So now that the idea, now this idea may be even more terrifying to some, but I would argue that what actual alien abductees have experienced is just as scary, whether as a physical experience or otherwise. I would argue that even if Betty and Barney Hill just passed out, their consciousness was taken somehow. In other words, uh, they were abducted. In the story of Betty Hill, she started having dreams of the abduction after it happened, which suggested that she knew full well the difference between a dream and the actual experience of being taken. I see what you're saying. Okay. Right. So yeah. this isn't something that I believe that she would have confused. Right. That you that it was a dream to begin with that she thought had really occurred. And and I and I I'm with you on that because I don't I don't think I've ever met a person that had a dream and then they were convinced that the dream was reality. I think we as human beings are able to always, you know, pretty much always tell the difference between those things right so the the idea of sleep paralysis which which as you described is sort of like a waking dream it well it's a hallucination okay so you know i don't i don't know that people that experience those hallucinations always can identify them as such and i i could see having that experience if nobody's ever told you what it is mm-hmm. that it would be very alarming and that you would believe what you saw i mean that's if you're awake and your eyes are open and you see something you tend to believe it right sure so i could see them not identifying that as a dream or not experiencing that in the same way that they would experience a dream when they're asleep okay i don't know again how we divide the actual objective measure of what is truth versus what when we have an experience like this and when we have a number of people who claim to have experiences like this we form what ken wilbur would call an expert culture on the subject and so you have a number of people and they all are identifying a number of things that are commonplace to this experience saying that you know this is not what you think it is telling an entire group of people that mm-hmm. I think is we're kind of on dodgy ground and I can appreciate what you're saying my perspective on it is that there are so many things that happen within our psyches so many things that we experience that we don't totally understand and I think that's the whole point of psychology that we're trying to make sense of the human condition and so I don't think that there's a problem in exploring it from these kind of conventional theories. Now, I can understand what you're saying, that that could be experienced by someone as being dismissive or not legitimizing their experience. But I could also see for other people, if this was a very scary thing that happened to them and they get this explanation, that it could also bring some relief. Right. And so you, I can't, we can't discount that right. piece. You've brought that point up before that mm-hmm. like when you were told that your heartburn was actually something that was psychosomatic. Right. You were relieved. Yeah. Oh, good. Then I know that this is this is not actually happening to me that I wasn't really abducted by aliens. And I do believe that that's what people a lot of people probably look for initially. Uh-huh. But when things like what the hills described 
start happening when things like incredibly vivid nightmares or missing time, having a difficulty sort of reintegrating back into your normal life, right? This becomes something more than that. Because obviously a simple explanation like, well, you had sleep paralysis is not really making them feel better. Right. Well, and, and I think it's it depends on the person and the experience. And, and again, I'm not... I'll, Half of the population in the United States believe that aliens exist and that there is other life out there. So is it absolutely impossible that they're visiting us? You know, it's probably not impossible. I just don't believe. I just don't. I don't know. I just don't believe it. I don't know. There's like no, I can't be very diplomatic about it because I just don't believe it. Yeah. I think it's I think it's natural to be skeptical, you know, but again, it's such a part of our culture now. Yeah. That it has to come from somewhere. And I, I agree with that. And and I, I'm not saying that there's not intelligent life out there. I have no idea. The universe is vast and like you said, maybe it's very arrogant to think that we are the only intelligent life out there. But believing that there's intelligent life and believing that they have visited us and that they abduct us and then put us back are two different things. And I don't want to get, I mean, I, I mean, we could debate whether or not there is evidence for that. I mean, there are people that do that way better than I do. UFO, uh, UFOologists or... Ufologists. You know, ufologists or... or yeah, whatever what, they're, yeah. What, what they're called, right? Right. Um, not, to di- not to like make light of it. Not to we make just, light of it, but there are people who do that. They like, study that. Yeah, like crazy hair guy off of Ancient Aliens, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. He he's he could argue all day long about all the evidence, supposed evidence that that they have that we have of alien visitation here mm-hmm. on this planet dating, you know, millennium. I'm more interested in what the the psychological implications are for us. Agreed. Yeah, know? I'm more ex- interested in those experiences. Okay, so that's what fascinates me, okay? And it's this idea of consciousness, which is probably what we would identify as our most essential part of what makes us who we are. Mm-hmm. The fact that we are conscious. Right. So regardless of whether or not somebody's actually, again, being beamed out of a window, so, you know, some alien could scrape skin off their, you know, skin, skin off, off their, their skin. leg, <laughs> skin off their skin, right? Could scrape skin off of them or whatever, you know, right. or show yeah. them a map of Zeta Reticuli. If your consciousness is being taken someplace that is absolutely terrifying to you yeah. and it's going against your will, you are being, in a sense, abducted. Well, and I, I also think about just nightmares. I think all of us have had very vivid, very terrifying nightmares. And even those experiences, sometimes when you wake up, although you know that it was a dream, they stick with you. And so we can't dismiss that totally either. Right. So I, you know, I think it, it makes for a very interesting discussion and I'm, I'm very curious to hear from our listeners and have them kind of weigh in. What I would really love is if there's somebody out there listening who has had an abduction experience. I think it would be fascinating. I've never actually met anyone who has claimed to be abducted and so I think it would be very interesting to get that firsthand, you know, um, description of it. And here's the crazy thing: you probably what? have met somebody, you just didn't know it. And maybe they didn't want to tell me because I'm such a skeptic about it. Well, I think that anybody <laughs> would. I think anybody would probably be afraid to come forward with a story like that. 
yeah you know, for fear of being ridiculed yeah so all right so what is your favorite alien movie dr jessica Oh, so you always put me on the spot. And I'm one of those people that I have to think about things for a minute. Okay, you so think why about that. You go, you go first. Yeah, I, I would say that there's there's probably a few that really come to mind. Probably one of my favorites, all-time favorites, is Fire in the Sky. Oh, that was... I remember going to the movie theater mm-hmm. to see that. And um, one of my best friends growing up, Danielle... Um, she and I were all into like alien abduction stuff at the time. Oh, wow. And we went to the theater and that movie was so scary. Yeah. That one really, <laughs> really creeped scary. me out. And I thought that was really well done. And that's also supposedly based on a, a true, true story. story. So, you know, I mean, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But now I want to go watch some X-Files. Um, so yeah, so let us know what you guys think. Again, if any of you have ever had an experience like that, we would love to hear about it. If you want to weigh in and leave us a comment on our website at psychologyafterdark.com on the discussion page or at Facebook at Psychology After Dark, you can do that. You can also find some links to some of the research that we discussed on today's episode on our website. I also wanted to just take a moment and thank all of our listeners for your support and for telling your friends about our podcast. Our number of subscribers has really skyrocketed over the past month. And we couldn't have reached so many people without your help. So thank you so much. And as always, if you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a five-star rating. And if you're so inclined, write us a review. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. Thanks again for listening. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written, hosted, and produced by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McConnell. It was edited by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and Starlight by Soft Space, both provided by Gemendo.